please turn with me in your Bible to 1 Samuel chapter 22. As you know, we are working our way through a series on the life of King David. And the title of the series is David the Warrior Poet. And what makes David such an amazing person to study is not only is there so much written about David in the Bible, but you see so many sides to David, and sometimes they're simultaneous. Last week, we saw an account of David where he was acting insane. It was like his lowest point. It would be the thing that none of us would ever want to emulate, where he was letting spittle drip down his beard, remember? And he was scratching on the gate and saying nonsense, and the king, Achish, said, this man is mad. Why would I want him in my kingdom? Yet David, in Psalm 34, of that account, writes, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be on my mouth. So David reveals that you can have this outward experience that looks one way, and yet inwardly there's a reality that's much deeper and more rich going on. So it's, he's fascinating. And we're coming now to the second of two sermons of the wilderness. Uh, and then in brackets, the cave. Okay? What's happened is David has had to flee Saul. Saul is an evil king. He's really not officially the king anymore. Uh, at least in God's eyes, and he's been after David. And as you might remember last week, David fled to Nob, uh, to, the, uh, to Ahimelech, the priest, and he fled there to Gath, and now he's come to this cave. And that's kind of what's the backdrop. And I just want to ask you this question. I'm using the cave to be a metaphor. We just sang this song, come as you are, fall in his arms, right? Lay down your burdens. This idea of come out and come to the cave in our sermon this morning, in our discussion, is a perfect place. It's where you want to be. So I'm going to invite you this morning to come to the cave. So keep that in your mind as we look at the passage. We're going to look at two verses. Psalm, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 22, excuse me, three verses. We'll look at verse 1 and 2 and then verse 23. <clears throat> David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul, gathered to him. And he became captain over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And then verse 23, where David says, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. This is the word of the Lord. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that David is a picture of your son, Jesus. We praise you, Father, for sending Jesus to rescue us, to draw us out. And I pray this morning we would hear that message clearly, that your spirit would open the eyes of our heart to understand our need for you. Amen. On May 3rd, 1999, that date might ring a bell the tornado that hit Moore, Oklahoma. We were actually in California when it happened, and they had, like, the national people were, couldn't get the word right. They would call it a hurricane. And then, oh, I mean, the tornado, that's how big it was, right? It was actually one of the, it's still the fastest wind speeds ever recorded on planet Earth. Fast. Amazing. It changed the Fujita scale from just F to EF, enhanced, and it was horrible. What made it so shocking was it was on the ground for four hours from Chickasha moving into Oklahoma City, and yet people still weren't aware or able to get out of its way. 
I think it's one of the first storms where they started to say, like, you can't just go to a safe spot anymore. Like, you need to get out of the way or underground. So it was big. Why do I bring that up? There was one story that stands out. that I, it, it was really sad, actually. It's all sad. But this person was sick from California, and so he couldn't leave. So he got in the bathtub, put the thing, the, the, I think he had a mattress over him, and he died in the storm. And this is, please, do not laugh. I'm not trying to make a joke. He was on the second floor of the apartment. And if you're from Oklahoma, that just sounds crazy. Like, don't you, don't you understand, like, what's happening here? If you're on the second floor, I don't care what part of the room you're in. But if you're not from Oklahoma or somewhere that has tornadoes, danger doesn't make sense to you. And you're just listening for words. Get into the bathtub. Okay. And in the same way, I think, as Christians, we think we're avoiding danger often by just doing certain things. We, we just go do steps, but we aren't really actually fleeing the real danger. And for the folks that go to this cave to meet with David, they understood the real danger. My fear is that we don't. My fear is that you and I are very, very comfortable. We read that in our Confession of Sin. I'll read it later. But we underestimate the evil in our midst and the way evil wants us to be snuffed out as a church, as Christians, our families. And yet Jesus is saying, come to me. But if you're going to come to Jesus, you have to be all in with Jesus. Right? That's what we're going to look at this morning. This idea that David, I think, in this little snapshot reminds us of a principle the Bible teaches throughout. You can't have one foot in with Jesus and one foot in this life. That is so hard to hear. So I hope that will start to make more sense as we go in. But I hope you'll realize that if you want to flourish in this life, you have to be all in with Jesus. So three things. You need the cave. You need to flee to the cave. And you need the power that's at the cave. So this, you need this cave. Why did, why did they, these people need a cave? Because Saul was really, really evil. I think before I started this series, and I still have it sometimes, because you have so many interactions with King Saul, he doesn't seem that bad. You know, sometimes you just kind of read him, and you think he's, he's annoying, but, you know, David could get him, right? And he cut off his, you know, his clothes and said, I could have got you. Saul's not that, that good at, at killing people. I'm not that scared. But there's a whole passage I had to pass over for, for the sake of brevity that I just want to remind us of. And that is, after um, David goes to Nob last week, remember he walks in, the priest is there, chapter 21, he sees somebody, Doeg, the Edomite. Remember him last week? And Doeg immediately goes and tells Saul, I saw David. And in chapter 22, where we are now, from verses 6 to 20, the story unfolds like this. Saul, hearing Doeg, goes to Nob to find David. He's not there and so he says, kill, he looks through the guard and says, kill the priest and kill all the, whole, all the priests. And the guard says, no. So he looks at Doeg, you do it. And this Doeg, this Edomite, not only kills the priests, he kills like everybody in the town. And he kills their animals. Like he's that vicious. And it's Ahimelech's son, Abiathar, escapes and tells David, and it's to him that David said in verse 22, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul. And it's to him that verse 23 is said, Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life 
seeks your life. Now, we not only have the fact that um, you need a cave because Saul is evil because of that story, but look at the people who come to him. It's interesting, in verse 1, his brothers and his father and mother come to him. You know, the last time I remember his brother was in chapter 17. Do you remember? David shows up for the Goliath story, and he's bringing, like, cheese to the brothers from his dad, and uh, he hears Goliath yelling, what's this all about? And the men start to tell David, well, let me tell you what's going on, and and Saul's going to give him a a reward, etc., and Eliab's like, you're just here to watch the fight. You're just, and he just kind of snides them. He doesn't have any respect for him. And yet by our passage, when they hear David's in this cave, what do they do? They flee. They go. They want to be with him. Even his own father and mother are there. And then all these other folks that gather. How aware of sin, how aware of evil are you? Are you willing to flee like these people? I mean, Saul had not actually done anything to them, right? At this moment, they're just thinking, if he carries out his behavior, I'm in trouble. You know, probably because I'm tied to David through family or other things, he's coming after me. Um, But are you afraid of, of the Saul in our world, of Satan? Like, what do you think of Satan? Do you think Satan really exists I think a lot of our world doesn't think he exists. It's C.S. Lewis's quote that says something like, um, one of the greatest feats that Satan has pulled is to convince you and I that Satan is not real. That's his favorite thing. And we've gotten so caught up in science and, and, and technology and how information has passed and everything has an explanation that, that the idea of a spiritual realm has really lost uh, favor in the eyes of even Christians. But what about the sin in the world? Right? Our world is sinful. Right? We know in the garden, after the fall, God tells Eve, childbearing will be great misery. Like, it's not just that the birth moment is going to be really painful. It's that raising children is painful. The very next passage is Cain killing Abel. And then you have the thorns for Adam. And, and so work's going to be corrupted. And not only the ground, and, and we see that in, in Romans 8 as well, right? The world is groaning. Not only the actual physical planet and disease, etc., but people. I mean, look at what we're... The biggest thing in the news right now is like every actor seems to have had a horrible story where someone has taken advantage of them. So here you've got an entire industry, and you know it spreads across all places, right? People harm people. That's what you do. That's what I do. That's what we do in our flesh. Without Jesus, we harm each other. But the most shocking thing the Bible tells us is that the enemy actually is inside of us. Like, who watches Stranger Things? Is it too soon? Okay, well, I'm going to give a little spoiler. The, the Shilers, like, leave the church forever. Well, I won't give a spoiler for this season. I'll just say one of the characters from last season, Will, goes to the Upside Down, right? The Upside Down's the bad place. And we know that. We know he's infected. And all I'm going to say is that's not good for him, Okay. I'll stop there. And let me, if I were writing my own story, what I would tell you is that the infection, it's hard to tell where it's you or where it's something else. And the sin in us is so rampant that it, it, it's hard to tell. Like it's right after your most glorious moment, you might have the craziest thought. Like you, the enemy is inside of you. 
And so you and I have this great need for a cave. And look at the types of people in verse 2. Everyone who is in distress. Everyone who is in debt. And everyone who is bitter in soul. This is like the Dave Ramsey-like quote of the day, right? This is the Dave, I'm sorry. It's beautiful. Why, why the word debt? Well, debt is obviously horrible. It really is bad. You're under the oppression of others. But even further, that debt refers to Saul's kingship. Saul was most likely greatly overtaxing his people, causing distress and debt, and, and, and those that were um, bitter in soul. So basically, not only was he physically after them, but his policies had haunted them and ruined them and created havoc in the land. And these were the people who said, I'm going to flee to this cave. How do you view your sin? I wanted to reread. So just one quick aside. Take these with you. Worship guides. Take them home. I mean, not that we don't want to recycle them. We can. But I don't know. Doug and I uh, work really hard to think through the content to match it to this sermon and you'll notice often it does kind of match with the theme. And I just want to show you the confession of sin for this week. Forgive us, Lord, we have underestimated our sin. We have seen it as an inconvenience, an annoyance, a mistake. We do not see our sin as the hunter, the devourer, the gateway to death. Forgive us for not treating it as an enemy, for not seeing it as the insatiable destroyer. Forgive us for considering it manageable. For living with it like a neighbor. If you, don't, if you want to know what that would look like, you don't go to the cave. You can hear that David's in the cave, and you think to yourself, I know the tornado's coming, and I know the cave's over there, but I've got like 10 more minutes. I'm okay. Is that what we're doing? Or do you actually see it, and do you flee to the cave? Point number two. Look at what's happening at this cave. It's a very interesting gathering of people. And look at the position that David has. Second verse toward the end. And he became captain over them. What happens at this cave when you flee to it? Well, one thing that happens is you get really good training. These men came to the cave. We didn't read the next verses. David takes his mom and dad, and I would presume other folks that were maybe elderly, to Moab. And, and here he has left over his fighting men and possibly their families. And he's going to train them. Do you see that you are now in a season of training? Okay, have you ever heard of the mighty men? Like, the mighty men are amazing. These are like, if you, you know, sometimes you'll read in history, like, you know, we know the SEAL teams. And, and, and if you like Native American, I remember reading a book on the Comanche Indians, how amazing warfare they were with such little Apaches can live off of the desert. Well, the mighty men were like that. They were very, very few, but they were awesome. So 2 Samuel 23 tells the story. David, uh, in the cave that we're talking about now at Adulam, makes a comment, kind of an offset comment. Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well at Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem's like Fort Knox with the Philistines, right? It's kind of like the Christmas vacation when, you know, he says, if just someone would bring my boss right here and then... Where did Cousin Eddie go? Well, that's what the mighty men were like. They were like Cousin Eddie. Not really. They go to Bethlehem, break in past the Philistines. This is 2 Samuel 23. They get water from this well in Bethlehem. 
at the gate, and they bring it back without spilling it while killing people on the way. And they bring it to David. That's who these mighty men are. That's the kind of training we're getting. Um, spiritual training. The cave is a place where you will be spiritually trained and, and made into an army that can defeat the enemy. Is that how you view Christianity? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? Last week we talked about the armor of God. Um, it, Paul sees you know, gospel readiness as boots, the sword of the Spirit, the, the breastplate of righteousness. Like, Do you see yourself as being equipped and trained in this life, in this cave portion of life, which is until we go home to glory, we're in a stronghold, the enemy's here still. Is that how you view your life? Is that even a part of how you view your life? I have to confess, for me, often it's not. Why? Why do we not have that view? I think so often it's because we haven't left behind our past life. I mean, isn't that what the Bible constantly tells you to do? Mark 8, 34, and calling the crowd to him, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So the gospel is calling us to sort of sever ties from the past. Not, and I'm going to try to explain that practically in a minute, but what I want you to hear is when we're emotionally and even in a way spiritually tied to the world around us, we are of no use in the army of God, right? Um, I didn't, I'm not going to do a full-on perfect illustration here, and I know I've got historians in the room, but just let me reference for the moment Washington crossing the Delaware, 1776. Uh, I did look it up, but I'm just going to give a few brief touches, and then Dr. Bowles will fill in the rest later after church if you'd like a more, uh, he probably has the original book too, in his, anyway. Um, but, but the point is, what Washington realized was he had the opportunity to attack the enemy because they were celebrating Christmas. Now, right, I love Christmas. Like, don't you love Christmas? So I can hear us saying right now, oh, is it a sin to celebrate Christmas? Well, if your enemy's going to attack you the next morning because you got drunk at your celebration, they were groggy, and on the 26th, the sober uh, you know, militia comes in with less men, and they like lose four people. Do you know? Something like that. I'm sorry. Now I'm being really mean. I don't know. But they like, I think they killed 400 and they captured or killed 400 and they, and they won the battle. And then it just reminds you that if you, they were, the enemy was thousands of miles from home trying to live like they were home. Here's Washington and they're in their home realizing I can't act like I'm in my home right now because I have this mission I'm on. Now, I bet you three years later they all celebrated Christmas maybe even two years later. But they were willing that morning to forgo something for the sake of the kingdom. And, and the question is, are we even willing to consider that? Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who are the witnesses? Hebrews 11. He goes through many of the saints of the Old Testament, including David. We could obviously include the mighty men in our understanding of that. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before Him, endured the cross, despising the shame, 
and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is the reason why we can throw off whatever entangles us, whatever hinders us. Now here's the challenge. How do you decide what that is? That's very difficult. And and secondly, let me be very, very clear. I don't really want any of you to go to a real cave. Because that would be really weird. Like, we started a cult. No, the the cave is in our midst. Like, what are you doing in your daily life to reflect Christ? Um, There's this, I've read this before, but there's this account from the second century called the Epistle to Diognetus, and it's a guy writing, this writer is writing what he is, he's a non-Christian writing his perception of the Christians in this century. Christians are not distinguished from the rest of humanity by country, language, or custom. For nowhere do they live in cities of their own, nor do they speak some unusual dialect, nor do they practice an eccentric way of life. They live in their own countries, but only as non-residents. They participate in everything as citizens, and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign country is their fatherland, and every fatherland is foreign to them. They marry like everyone else and have children, but they do not expose their offspring. They share their food, but not their wives. They are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, Indeed, in their private lives, they transcend the laws. They love everyone, and by everyone they are persecuted. They are unknown, yet they are condemned. They are put to death, yet they are brought back to life. They are poor, yet they make many rich. They are in need of everything, yet they abound in everything. They are dishonored, yet they are glorified in in their dishonor. They are slandered, yet they are vindicated. They are cursed yet they bless. They are insulted, yet they offer respect. When they do good, they are punished as evildoers, and when they are punished, they rejoice as though brought to life. And that's just a short part of that epistle. And I think, what a testimony. What a testimony that an onlooker who's looking for negatives can come away with that description of the church. May it be so of us, right? May us be trained like the mighty men, but spiritually in such a way that we are, are able to press back the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness in our midst, right? But how do we do that? Um, how, in the, how is it even possible? And this is our last point to look at, the power that's at the cave. It's, it's really, when you look at David, what he says there is um, in verse 23, Stay with me. Do not be afraid. For he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Do you hear what David's doing in this cave, in this situation? He's saying, I am here, and as long as you're with me, you're safe. Right? And I want to turn to Psalm 142 because this is a, a kind of a reversal of our last situation. Last week, David's doing what is actually insane looking and something you would never want to emulate. But the Psalm 34, you're like, yes! Your praise will be on my lips. He's like in revival. This week, David in this cave looks like where you want to be. Like, they're probably making weapons. He's got Goliath's weapon. They're kind of looking at it. And 
You know, they're getting all the mighty men together and they're training. And listen to what he says in Psalm 142. A mascal of David when he was in the cave. A prayer. With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, You know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. I cry to You, O Lord. I say, You are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. I'm, just par- I'm reading portions of that psalm. I would encourage you to read the whole psalm. David is revealing that when he looks like he's at his strongest and he's gathering these people and he's telling Abiathar, I've got you. His soul is overwhelmed, isn't it? His soul is, is utterly in despair. And it reminds me of our Savior. On the night he was betrayed, when he goes to the garden and he prays, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That Jesus is our mediator. David was the mediator to God for that group of men and for his entire kingdom. Jesus is our mediator and he sees his need. He sees your need for a Savior. And he goes away and he prays. And as he's praying, he sweats these drops of blood blood, because he knows that he's going to be crucified. Right? He knows he's going to be hung on the cross. And the most the cup he's even referring to is the cup not of the pain that you watch if you watch the movie or if you read the accounts. It's the wrath of God poured out on him that he does not deserve. Why is the wrath of God being poured out on Jesus for you and for me? Right? That's the gospel. And if we recognize in the first point that we need a Savior and we run to Him. And the second point, we've, we've talked about training and leaving all behind for Him. This third point is saying the reason is because He died and rose again and we died with Him and rose again with Him. Listen to Paul in Romans 6. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. If you read Romans 6 and underline with Him and all the kinds of wording that sounds just like that, over and over there's this term of uniting with him. We are one with Jesus. Is that how you see yourself? As being dead and raised with Christ. What that means is there's something you are different than you were before. What that means is the things that you look to to define you are different. Right? Um, when I read that um, verse 23 when he tells Abiathar not to be afraid, I, I went to immediately to Philippians. Just that We all know the verse where Paul says, do not be afraid or do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God. How, how is this going to happen? What does Paul tell you the reason for this? That the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds. 
Is that how he stops? Someone that memorized that verse told me the last few words. In Christ Jesus. Who is guarding your thoughts? Who is standing at the cave of your life? Like, what is the hope? Is it your bank account? Is it your doctor's report? Is it your football team's win last night that secured you in the top four? Too soon? See, I'm confessing. I told Shane, I'm like, right after that's, that game's over, I've got to repent and start thinking about Sunday morning because that's not my hope. It's almost, anyway, never mind. Move on. Shut your mouth. Move on. What is the gate that you cling to? What is the thing that you have as your source? I'm afraid for me so often I give Jesus credit and I say he's there, but it's a million other things and it's constantly being exposed. Right? And when you're at the true cave, when you actually are realizing that the sin is real, that Satan is real, that this world's fallenness is real, and it's infecting your very soul, the only thing that should bring you hope is that Jesus Christ conquered death, and you are in Him. You were dead with Him, and you were raised with Him. And that is the power of the Gospel. And the only reason why that doesn't infect you or me sometimes is because like our confession of sin, we're underestimating it. We're saying things like it's manageable. Maybe I'll work on that like a new year. You know what? I'll give that up for Lent. That's what I'm going to do. So we have our our strategy. And Jesus says, I'll have none of that. If you're going to come to this cave, you're going to have to die. Right? Take up your cross and follow me. But when you do that, you will live. And Christ is saying, I promise you, and David is saying, as a precursor to Christ, come into this cave and you will live. And I will just encourage you, as we draw this to a close, of this story I've told before, of just the time where we were at seminary with financial burdens. I just couldn't even think straight. And Emily said, how did you say it? I wish you could say it. But she can't preach up here because then everyone would get angry. Jesus is on the ship, and he was able to calm the storm. And here's me, Mr. Cynical, right? What if he doesn't want to calm this storm? What if this storm is one he's going to not calm? And then I just kept pondering my, my unbelief. The promise that Jesus makes in that story is not, oh, you have unbelief, I'll calm the storm. What he reveals in that story is you're unbelieving because I was asleep while the storm was raging and you were afraid, right? Like, why? If you look over and Jesus is okay, and you're in Jesus, you're okay. And now I don't have to have fear. He's guarding my heart. I can look. Let's, hey, guys, Jesus is asleep. Let's take a nap as the ship is doing this, right? That would have been awesome. That's what he wanted. But they had unbelief. So he calms the storm to prove. What if that ship would have gone down? What if they would have all drowned? You're with your Savior. Like, you're going to heaven. Like, there was no negative in that situation. And so, I would encourage us all two things, practically. One is to understand this theology that you are united to Christ. Stop looking at things for guards that aren't Jesus. And then two, I really mean this. This is not just a 
hey, I'm not going to do my own work. You do the work for me. Take these home. Read the quotes. Read the scripture. Sing the song. Doug posts them on the city, the tunes. Process these words and, re- and think and, and meditate on the fact that this is not something we do on Sunday morning to sound good in our ear. Everything in here is pointing us to the fact that your only hope is Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for King David, who was just simply a precursor, Lord Jesus, to you, who came as the son of David to draw us out of our feeble attempts at holiness and to rest in your work alone for salvation. Forgive us for thinking that we have our lives together when we don't. Or forgive us for running with anxieties to other places, other guards, and not to you. Forgive us for not rejoicing for the ways you constantly are blessing us, primarily in our union with you, Jesus. And I pray as we transition to communion, Holy Spirit, that you would attend to this sacrament, that our hearts would be melted within us as we taste and see that you are good. Amen.